Billions of dollars have been spent in pursuit of a pharmaceutical treatment for Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. Their fail rate through the 21st century is stuck at 100%. The dominant story promoted by Alzheimer's advocacy organizations, pharmaceutical companies, and academic experts has been that, without a cure, aging societies will face a demographic tidal wave of dementia, a silver tsunami unleashing devastating socioeconomic consequences. Yet, dementia rates have actually fallen in the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, France, Sweden, and the Netherlands over the past decade, even though biotechnology continues to come up short. A recent study found that while the overall number of people affected by dementia is incrementally rising in these countries, as we would expect given the growing population of aging individuals, the incidence rate of dementia has consistently declined. How can the dementia tsunami be losing momentum without effective drugs to prevent and treat the illness? And how can countries continue this somewhat paradoxical brain health trend? That was Daniel George, reading from the first opinion essay, The Brain Health Paradox, Dementia Rates Have Fallen Even As Drugs Have Failed, an essay that he wrote with Peter Whitehouse. Daniel is an associate professor of humanities and public health sciences at Penn State College of Medicine. Peter is professor of neurology at Case Western Reserve University. And together, they're the authors of the book, American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society, which was published in September. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. I'm here with Carl Hick, Chief Digital and Information Officer at Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Carl, how is Takeda using technology to create potentially life-changing treatments and vaccines? Thanks, Angus. Data and digital technologies are fundamentally changing the way that we live and we work. Here at Takeda, we see these advances as a real opportunity to drive better health outcomes through more personalized, patient-centric experiences. For example, we're exploring the expanded use of AI augmented algorithms to provide faster, personalized diagnoses for patients and to predict treatment responses. Another way we're investing in new tech here at Takeda is by empowering our employees to learn new skills. Think of that as a democratization of technology in emerging areas like robotic process automation and predictive analytics. We also have identified the need for new technology talent on our team. We're hiring for data scientists, data engineers, cloud and solution architects. These are just a few of the many ways that we're working to develop our talent and use data and digital technologies to build a better future for patients. Thanks, Carl. For more information, visit Takeda.com. That's www.takeda.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, editor of First Opinion, Stats platform for essays and articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to talk with you, Daniel. Likewise, Pat. Thanks for having me. Have you and Peter been collaborating long? We have. Um, we've almost been collaborating two decades now. I uh, showed up at his doorstep as a uh, uh, gainfully unemployed Wayfish uh, uh, post-undergrad um, gentleman from Cleveland and uh, kind of um, worked my way into as a research assistant in his uh, in his lab at the uh, Memory and Aging Center in Cleveland. 
And uh, we just started collaborating from there. We wrote our first book, The Myth of Alzheimer's in 2008. We've collaborated on dozens of other articles and projects. I ended up doing my doctoral work in the intergenerational school that Peter and his wife, Kathy, founded um, in Cleveland. And so we've been uh, good friends and colleagues ever since. Cool. That's uh, uh, quite a long collaboration. And I, I want listeners to know that we intended to um, have you both on the podcast, but technical difficulties are keeping Peter offline, then online, then offline, and then online. So we're just, uh, <laughs> we're just going in this direction. Before we get to the heart of your essay, I think it's important to clarify something you mentioned in your reading. The number of people affected by dementia is rising, but the incidence rate has been declining. In, in simple terms, what's the incident rate? Yeah, so the, the number of people increasing is a function of there just being more people in the, in the culture who are entering old age, and that's a, a you know, marker of success. Uh, the incidence rate is sort of the relative risk of people for developing dementia within that population, and that has been um, steadily falling since the 1980s. Uh, for people in the United States and these five other Western European countries that I mentioned. So is that like the percentage of people in a specific age category over a specific time? Yeah, that's right. So they're looking at cohorts of older folks uh, who are turning, you know, 65 or older and the relative risk for that cohort vis-a-vis uh, -vis other cohorts who have aged earlier. And so the cohorts that have turned 65 plus since the 1980s have had declining risk of dementia, 13% uh, decline each decade and 16% declining risk specifically of Alzheimer's disease. So what's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's? I think a lot of people concatenate them. Yes, that's a great, great point. Um, dementia is the umbrella term. Uh, there are multiple types of dementia. Alzheimer's is the most common cause of dementia, but you also have Parkinson's disease and vascular dementia and Lewy body frontal lobe dementia. But Alzheimer's is the most uh, common form of dementia. How big a problem is this in the United States? That's a really interesting way of phrasing the question. I, I think um, what the Alzheimer's Association would tell you is that there are 5 million people in the United States who have Alzheimer's. Uh, there are you know, 40 million plus worldwide who have it. It's a growing threat. It's a tsunami, as we say in, in the article and stat. Um, but the word problem is interesting uh, because uh, uh, you know, a problem does imply uh, solutions. And part of why we wrote this book is because you know, this research that has come out is pointing us towards potential solutions. They may not be in the form of a pill or a product in the marketplace of memory, um, but you know, perhaps this uh, this turgid problem of Alzheimer's that gets uh, metaphorically uh, turned into a tidal wave and a silver tsunami is maybe something that's more amenable to our, um, our, our public health efforts than we once thought. The NIH alone has funded nearly $20 billion in dementia-related research since 2011. And the pharmaceutical industry has poured billions of dollars into the quest for an Alzheimer's treatment. So far, there's little to show for that effort. Why, why do you think that is? Right. There's a 100% fail rate, basically, as a result of uh, this billion dollars of investment that we've poured in. And I think, depending on who you talk to, there will be different theories. What Peter and I believe is that we have misidentified what Alzheimer's disease is. And most people will agree with that, that Alzheimer's is not one thing. It's better thought of as a syndrome, a cluster of age-related changes that are happening in people's brains. And therefore, the pharmaceutical attempt to target beta amyloid, which is something we can talk about more specifically, but it's one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease in, in addition to the tangles, 
And we have sort of declared amyloid to be toxic over the past two decades. And all of our pharmaceutical efforts have been targeted at preempting or removing amyloid full stop. And we've been successful at doing that. But because we're only attacking one part of that diffuse syndrome, you know, we haven't unfortunately seen um, clinical benefits, uh, even though we've been successful in biologically removing amyloid. And so the whole enterprise is sort of um, thrown into question. Uh, and even more so by aducanumab, the drug that just was approved this summer, even though it did not show any clinical efficacy despite removing amyloid. You mentioned uh, a new drug, Agihelm, also known as aducanumab. In a controversial decision in June, the FDA approved it. Was it the breakthrough that some have claimed, or do you think it falls under the, quote, little to show for that effort, unquote, category? I think uh, instead of a breakthrough, Peter and I have been talking about it as, as a disaster. And, you know, um, well, that's Aaron a big Kesselheim, difference. It is it's a big <laughs> difference. Uh, Aaron Kesselheim, um, who, who is in Boston and was on the FDA panel that recommended nearly unanimously not to approve uh, aducanumab, has called it, you know, one of the worst approvals in American history. Uh, and um, it's, it's a drug that was priced at $56,000 by Biogen. That's not even factoring in pet scans and clinical care that is going to be required to observe people who are at higher risk for edema and microbleeds in the brain. Um, you've, you've got uh, essentially this drug that clears amyloid but has not shown any efficacy and to the point where the VA and other major hospital systems, including um, uh, Mass General and Brigham, uh, yesterday announced that they weren't going to be covering this drug. So uh, I think you're seeing in the decisions of these large entities, uh, you know, all the evidence you need about, you know, whether this was a breakthrough or a disaster. And I think there, as Peter says, there is a real chance that this drug could be recalled. I think it's interesting that you mentioned Mass General and Brigham because Dennis Selko, who is one of the leading lights of the amyloid hypothesis theory, did all his work at the Brigham. So it's interesting that the hospital where much of this work was done is choosing not to use this drug. That is a great connection. Uh, and yeah, Dennis Selko is sort of the high priest of, of the amyloid hypothesis, this notion that amyloid is what drives the disease process. And one interesting fact is that the, the proponents of that hypothesis are called Baptists, beta amyloid protein. And so you have the Baptists who have dominated the funding uh, based on this, the Selko-Hardy research. Uh, and the Taoists, the people who believe the Tao protein that's in the tangles, uh, is driving the disease process. And so you have this sort of quasi-religious war, which as a medical anthropologist, I absolutely love. Uh, <laughs> and, but uh, it's, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, just to be clear, it's T-A-U-ist and not T-A-O-ist. That's right. We would be better off if it was T-A-O probably. <laughs> but um, yeah, the Baptists have dominated that funding. Some people talk about, um, you know, the, the amyloid cabal, you know, the amyloid mafia. It, it is absolutely dominant in this world. And in, in order to get funding, you sort of have to endorse the amyloid hypothesis. Uh, organizations sort of promote people from within. Journals publish articles based on, do you support the amyloid hypothesis? And we had an article in Scientific American earlier this summer where we talk about the Alzheimer's industry and uh, it being too big to fail, the amyloid hypothesis being too big to fail. And it's a great case study in how money, business, industry dominates our science. Science doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It's always embedded in political economy. Yeah, I have to mention uh, my, my colleague, Sharon Begley, who died earlier this year, wrote a terrific article um, a couple years ago about the Alzheimer's cabal. 
Yes, and that is exactly who I'm quoting on that. She she wrote a brilliant expose uh, a couple years ago, and we miss her. Me too. You mentioned that you think of Alzheimer, you and Peter and others think of Alzheimer's as a syndrome. That sort of goes in line with what people are discovering about cancer, like prostate cancer isn't one cancer, or cardiovascular disease is just a whole range of things that might be different from one person to the next. Is that how you're looking at this? That's absolutely right. And it's interesting that the war on cancer and the war on Alzheimer's were both launched in the 1970s. Um, and, you know, it's a great political slogan to announce wars on, on um, you know, illnesses and, and, and dread diseases that we have. But when you start to actually do research on them, as you're saying, you realize that as you parse them, that we're talking about multiple things. There are multiple different forms of cancer that need to be treated differently. It's idiosyncratic treatment wise. The same goes for Alzheimer's. In fact, we've started calling it Alzheimer's diseases or Alzheimer's syndrome because as, as the neuropathologist will tell you, once you've seen one case of Alzheimer's, you've seen one case of Alzheimer's. Uh, you, you rarely, it's the most rare case of Alzheimer's disease is plaques and tangles, right? Most cases are mixed dementias, meaning that they have abnormal proteins like plaques and tangles, but also vascular changes and Lewy bodies and um, white matter disease. There's a cluster of things happening there. And so, yeah, to, to declare a war on Alzheimer's is just as foolhardy as the war on cancer, even though I understand the impulse behind it. So let's get to why you think dementia rates are falling. The gist of your essay, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that efforts to improve public health have improved brain health. And the common, one common effect seems to be better cardiovascular health. What's the connection there? Right. That's an important connection. Um, and I just mentioned vascular uh, factors being a part of this Alzheimer's syndrome. But uh, the brain is a highly vascularized organ within a highly vascularized body. And so uh, the health of the heart and the vascular system is going to affect the way nutrients and oxygen flow to the brain. In fact, 20% of uh, our cardiac output is devoted to transporting uh, uh, blood to the brain. So when you have conditions like hypertension and um, high cholesterol and diabetes, things that affect the vascular system, those are going to be risk factors for dementia uh, later in life. So there's a very intimate connection there. And people say what's good for the heart is good for the head. And that's a very pithy, simple way of thinking about it. So what are some of the public health improvements that you've seen that correlate with decreasing dementia rates? Yeah, I love talking about this um, because it, it reflects a very hopeful time in um, in our country. You know, we went through the traumas of the World Wars and the Great Depression, and it was a time when there were uh, sort of limits put on capital mobility, investments in public goods, uh, in public health, protections for workers, you know, an attempt to grow the middle class and have living wages, et cetera. But specific to uh, vascular disease in in the countries uh, other than the United States, they all guarantee health care for people. Uh, of course, we had Medicare and Medicaid during the Great Society in the 60s. But what that means is that more millions more people in those countries where dementia rates are falling had access to lifespan care where vascular risk factors could be managed and treated. Uh, healthier hearts, healthier heads. Um, we also had very effective public health campaigns uh, to reduce smoking. And so the rate of smoking in the 1960s in the U.S. was at 42%. And in 2019, it was down to 14%. That's a dramatic um, decrease. Um, also, I would be remiss not to, to mention lead. 
uh, because of the EPA, which unfortunately was formed because uh, the river in, in my hometown of Cleveland caught on fire in the late 60s. But the EPA uh, emerged and they were able to de-lead gasoline uh, throughout uh, the 70s and 80s. And that resulted over the, that two decade span in an 80% drop in lead levels in, in the blood of Americans. And that means people were less exposed to the neurotoxin of lead, but lead is also a uh, major risk factor for cardiovascular disease. It heightens your risk for, for heart attacks, for instance. So another major environmental input that was, was regulated out. And then the last bit that I'll, I'll talk to is um, education. So we had um, tens of millions of soldiers coming back after World War II. Obviously we had the GI Bill, which was put into place. 10 million Americans got access to higher education. Uh, that wasn't that wasn't broadly shared because, as we know, uh, the, the college and university system is still segregated in that era. So uh, uh, black Americans didn't enjoy those benefits. But uh, the, for the people who did uh, that, the cognitive reserve uh, from that, which we can go into a bit later, but basically the protection of uh, an education seems to have had a downstream effect on lowering dementia rates. And then the other the only other investments that I'll mention are the Cold War led to a major expansion in state. Uh, universities. And we had Pell Grants emerge in the 1970s, which enlarged, again, the number of disadvantaged students who were able to get access to that protective uh, uh, factor of higher education. So uh, uh, please explore that cognitive reserve hypothesis just a little bit. It might be unfamiliar to a lot of folks. Yeah, it's one of the really encouraging uh, uh, discoveries in the field in the last several decades. And it's basically the notion that intellectual stimulation across the lifespan whether it's through formal or informal education, um, can render the brain more resilient to the neuropathologies that accumulate with age. So plaques and tangles, vascular changes, the, all the things that I mentioned in that syndrome. Um, if you learn and put yourself in novel uh, learning situations over the course of your life, uh, it, there seems to be structural and functional um, mechanisms that we don't quite understand that maybe increase the number of neurons, the number of synapses, or the way that those synapses or uh, neurons wire together and create different pathways that helps us sustain our cognitive functioning even in the event of some neurodegeneration. So in, in your essay, you described a study showing that the overall rates of dementia have decreased in the U.S., in Canada, the United Kingdom, France, Sweden, and the Netherlands since 1988. Was that true across all demographics in those countries, or was it limited? That is a great question. And the data, I should say, was pooled in those studies. And so huh. um, I, it, we weren't able to sort of suss that out. And we're looking just at the at a very large level epidemiology uh, uh, sort of cross-section of, of that data. But that is a, a fantastic question to ask, especially um, given what we found recently, which is that uh, people of color are appear to be at disproportionately higher risk for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and the theory is that there are more stressful life situations in addition to uh, sort of other uh, clear disadvantages for people who are, are poor and, uh, and um, in the working class. Um, but, you know, that, that needs to be unpacked even more in future work. Uh, and so this first round of studies is just sort of the large picture. Well, let me, let me ask that question a different way. Did the public health efforts that you've described equally affect people across the spectrum in the United States? Or have they also contributed to the disparities in health among racial and economic groups in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I think um, there are a lot of people who fairly critique something like the New Deal 
for not being universalist, truly universalist. That doesn't negate the New Deal. I think there was uh, it was still a, a huge boon to our uh, collective good. But you know, Social Security wasn't extended to everyone. Obviously, the G- something like the GI Bill wasn't extended to everyone. Uh, as we know from situations like Flint in Michigan, uh, people of color are disproportionately exposed to lead poisoning. That's not just in water. That's also in the paint peeling from uh, the walls in you know poor housing stock. Um, so you know, if you are poor in this country you uh, are subjected to more, uh, you know, m- more risk factors for uh, cognitive decline. That, that's, just a, uh, that's just a fact. In our book, we have a ch- whole chapter um, devoted to um, you know, the ways poverty impacts the brain and the reasons why we need to ins- institute a, a, you know, a living wage again, uh, like we did in, in the mid-20th century. But you know, in the book, we talk about a $15 minimum wage, but that, that even now is not enough. We, we need to be in the $20 range or higher. Well, poor people and people of color are more likely to live near highways. They're more likely to live near industrial parks. It's, they're still subjected to some of the things that you were talking about that many others aren't. That's so true. And we're seeing more and more that air pollution is um, uh, emerging as a risk factor. So people who are exposed to um, pollutants in the air have greater neuroinflammation, for instance. Uh, there's uh, more deposition of amyloid and other abnormal proteins in the brains of people who live in clustered urban areas. So once you start zooming out, because we tend to think of Alzheimer's disease at the molecular level, right? It is a disease to be cured through a drug. But when you start zooming out and looking at the public health level and thinking about social determinants of brain health, it gives you such a richer tapestry uh, that can be a roadmap for us and where we put our collective investments, as you're pointing out. Pat. You warn in the essay that the decline in dementia rates may not continue. And I'm going to quote here, due to the reorganization of Western societies over the last several decades around radical free market principles. What do you mean by that? <laughs> that's, that's a provocative um, a phrase, uh, but I, I, I will defend that. And I think if we go back to thinking about vascular health, for instance, as being a, a key uh, component of the reductions in dementia rates that, we're see- that we are now seeing, uh, well, six in 10 Americans now, according to the CDC, uh, live with a chronic disease. We have 80 million people in this country who are un- or underinsured. Uh, that, that, is, that means all those people are not getting adequate management of vascular risk factors, uh, you know, or, or many of those people are not getting adequate care. We've seen a, a rising rates of depression and anxiety. Depression rates are up threefold just during the pandemic alone. Another thing that I study here at, at Penn State is diseases of despair. These are deaths specifically from alcoholism, suicide, and drug overdose. And we, we're seeing about 160,000 of those a year. People are really being pushed uh, in, in, in preca- the precariousness of their lives right now in ways that are obviously not healthy for body or mind. We have falling lifespans. We lost a whole year and a half of life last year. But before that, we had four of the last five years of uh, falling lifespan. And then I mentioned lead already, but even beyond Flint, we have a national lead crisis. There is lead in drinking water in almost every major city in the United States, even higher than Flint. Cleveland, as the New York Times wrote um, a couple of years ago, has significantly higher levels than Flint. Uh, so th- we need to address that, obviously. And then the last thing that I'll mention is education. And while we saw a surge in education in the mid-20th century, thanks to the sort of public investment in the GI Bill and other uh, programs, 
We're now starting to see falling total years of higher education in the cohorts that are emerging now. And there was just an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, last week showing how the rates of uh, men going into college vis-a-vis women have flipped. So men are now near 40% and women are at 60% and men are sort of withdrawing from college. Obviously, we've marketized college. It's you know something that's underwritten by Wall Street. Uh, people have to go into massive debt. Uh, and it's just deterring a lot of people from going into higher education, whereas there are almost no barriers in the mid 20th century for, uh, for boomers and the silent generation and the greatest generation. So those are worrying trends, all of those. And they all reflect, as you say, sort of, um, in, in unhealthy society and a, a way that we're trending that I'm really concerned about. Let's flip back for a second to pharmaceutical cures. Given what you've, given how you've described Alzheimer's as a syndrome or Alzheimer's diseases, uh, is the search for single drug approaches still a useful endeavor, or is or not? Yeah, great question, Pat. Uh, research is a good thing, obviously, but research is going to show the syndromal nature of this condition. And so I think what you're going to start hearing in the next few years as the aducanumab disaster plays itself out and as other Me Too amyloid drugs try to get into the FDA's, uh, uh, you know, under in the low regulatory hurdle that they've now set, what you're going to start hearing is um, we need cocktails of drugs. We need things that are not just addressing amyloid. We need things that are addressing tau, uh, tangles and inflammation and vascular changes. We're going to need a cocktail. And of course, that means multiple drugs for how many years? I mean, when do we have to start this cocktail of drugs? How expensive is that going to be? Who can afford that? To your earlier question about class uh, being a risk factor here, you know, what, what elite group of people is going to be able to afford these um, elixirs of cocktails of drugs? Uh, and so I think. Uh, ultimately, it's healthier and just more honest to be truthful about what Alzheimer's is and say, maybe this is something that's not amenable to a full cure. Um, and that doesn't need to lead to nihilism. That means uh, there, there are things that we can do investing in public goods, investing in each other, investing in caregiving. Maybe there are other places that we can put our chips instead of just throwing billions and billions into this bottomless pit of um, amyloid research. Well, I was, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask, how do you couple that kind of work, which sounds like it's important work, with your call to action to reorder population level structures, institutions, and social processes so they benefit the bodies and brains of future generations? Yeah, that that was um, a more hopeful message a few years ago when I started writing the book and Bernie Sanders was still a viable candidate for president, I must say. Um, I'm feeling a little bit uh, bleak uh, in terms of whether that uh, will be realistic in my lifetime. I was hoping, as many were, um, that COVID would be a crisis point, just like the Great Depression and the World Wars were, which launched the New Deal and other programs. Uh, and even in the 70s, the crisis of stagflation and uh, the oil shocks was what launched neoliberalism, hypercapitalism, and the sort of Reagan era capitalism that the, both the Republicans and Democrats have implemented over the last several decades. Crises tend to drive change. And unfortunately, what we've seen in the past year and a half is, I think, our, our ruling class doing as little as they possibly can for working people. Uh, and in, in terms of making uh, public resources available to people, we all were hoping that maybe we would get you know, universal health care out of this. Maybe we'd get a job guarantee or a living wage, something that would raise the, the floor for people in this country. 
uh, but we don't seem to be doing that. And I find that a little bit despairing. So if you and Peter were given the reins of dementia funding in the U.S., what one or two things would you – what one or two specific policies or healthcare practices would you invest in to avoid a regression in dementia rates? Oh, great question. I, I mean, if – if we're going to go into the kind of unicorns and rainbows hypothetical here, which I, I want to do, I, I, I would not put us just in dementia research. I would put us at the helms of the U.S. government. <laughs> and the policies that I would recommend would just simply be following from the data, universal health care in this country to better control risk factors uh, and the humanity of that. Um, and then um, universal higher education and vocational training programs for people and adult education opportunities. And I think those two investments, and that's that's even leaving out tackling the lead crisis, which is something the Biden administration, to their credit, is talking about doing right now. Um, but those would be where I would put all of my chips on those two things. So was that the opening salvo for the George White House or White House George ticket in uh, some year down the road? <laughs> or George Skerritt. I mean, Peter couldn't <laughs> even get on this call. So, I mean, you know, maybe it's you and I. <laughs> <laughs> or scare it, George. You know, few of us have the power to change policy, but we can change our own practices and behaviors. From what you've learned about dementia and Alzheimer's, do you have advice for individuals who hope to avoid these aging-related scourges? Yeah. And one of the things that we probably don't do well enough in our book is talk about self-help. And we, we actually call our book an other help book because we want people to think at the broad level about public health and public goods that we can invest in. However, uh, I understand that the, the person listening to this program is an individual, just as we all are, um, as you know, we're all part of the community too, but people worry about their brain health because of all the anxiety around memory loss. And so, yes, one of the really encouraging um, findings in the last decade or so, uh, and this is reflected in the Lancet Commission on Dementia Prevention, Intervention, and Care, which came out in 2020, is that about 40% of risk factors for dementia appear to be modifiable. So these are things like that, the vascular risk factors that we, we talked about. They identify like uh, minimizing diabetes, exercising, treating hypertension, but also things like preventing head injury and, you know, not smoking, reducing air pollution, as we talked about, uh, reducing midlife obesity, um, you know, avoiding excess alcohol and drug abuse, uh, maintaining frequent, frequent social contacts and keeping your mind challenged, that cognitive reserve element that we talked about earlier. So what Peter and I like to talk about in terms of brain health is what gives your life meaning and purpose, you know, in relationship to other people. Brain health is not a function of uh, a supplement you take or a brain fitness game you play or a Sudoku game you play. Although if you like those things, do them. But, you know, think in a more enriched thick way about what brain health is as an embodied human being who's part of a community, who's part of a natural environment. You know, we need to look out for our, you know, climate change and our environmental health as well as part of brain health. So we just want people to think in concentric circles, you know, going outwards from their own brain. Well, Daniel, thank you for talking with us today. Thanks to you and Peter for taking a higher level look at dementia and Alzheimer's and for exploring the silver tsunami. I appreciate your talking with me about it today. This has been great, Pat. Thank you. And thanks a lot, Peter. We missed you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. 
let me know which first opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. And until I tally the responses to Judith Miller's observation, be well during this strange and uncertain time.